Welcome to On Mic with me, Jordan Rich, an opportunity to meet creative people in the world of broadcasting and voiceover, actors, writers, directors, musicians, and more. Now, here's someone today we've heard for decades. He's the man behind some of the most endearing and entertaining voices in animation and beyond. He's the incredibly talented Billy West. For many years, a fixture on Boston Radio and ultimately the Howard Stern Show nationally, his vocal range is amazing. Now, just to give you a little taste, here's a sample featuring the likes of characters like Doug and Ren and Stimpy and his Futurama friend. Doug! <laughs> what am I doing here? No, you stupid kid! You don't understand! There's something I have to tell you. I am one of the Ninja Turtles. You got a problem with that? Wedgie! Trailblazing devotion to his work. I'm Yakko. I can't believe this is happening. Time out. This is too bizarre. Time in. Even for a cartoon. I think we have a difference of opinion here. Let the hostilities begin. You fool! Yes, I shall kill you. Hey, Ren, I picked a nose goblin. I picked it myself. Man, all this constant exposure to radiation is making me thirsty. Shut up and take my money. Young lady, bring me a sandwich from the dumpster and leave the maggots on it. Billy West, also known for his work on commercials. He's the red M&M, by the way. And perhaps most impressive of all, in my humble opinion, Billy took up the mantle of the legendary Mel Blanc, doing the voices of Bugs Bunny and friends in the amazing film Space Jam. He's also performed as Popeye, Woody Woodpecker, Lieutenant Sulu, George Takei, and of course, who else on earth does Larry Fine of the Three Stooges with such finesse? Only Billy West. And our conversation ensues been looking to talk with Billy on the show for a long time, and uh, Billy and I have crossed paths, sort of met uh, in between shows on BZ. You've done many guest appearances. I don't think I ever had you on as a personal guest of mine, but it's a pleasure to welcome you here. Oh, thank you so much, Jordan. First of all, the local connection. I want to start with that because you spent some time here in New England, which uh, certainly is part of who you are, and I have a note here that you used to have a band called Rainbow with Tim Sweeney on drums. Do you remember any of that? Yes. Uh, it was a trio, and uh, I played guitar, and uh, my friend Timmy Reagan played bass. And we just used to just do gigs, you know. It was always winter time. I don't remember us in the summer for some reason. I always remember being cold. The note here is, and this is from a friend of mine, Dan Tebow, who might have reached out to you. The note is that during, you know, gigs or maybe beforehand, you would start riffing on things like TV show themes and cartoon themes on the guitar, which yeah. obviously made sense bearing who you are today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I just, uh, I like periphery. And, you know, no one, I mean, guitar players basically cared about playing lead guitar. They would grab a Clapton album or Jimmy Page, you know, and, and just cop the licks and everything. And I'd be sitting in front of a TV set listening to this postmodernism uh, music that the theme songs were composed from. And uh, and I said, geez, I'd love to learn to play those. So I just sat down and I learned to play a lot of the stuff that I heard, you know, starting with the Peter Gunn theme. And I could play the, the Man from Uncle theme. And uh, I think it was like a 5-4 time signature. All crazy oddball stuff. And uh, I learned the theme to Sea Hunt. You know, it, it's oh, like... Yeah. It's freakish stuff. Perry Mason. <laughs> well, 
we're men of a certain age, you and I, and I always love to ask people my own age or close to it. We really were lucky to grow up, even though we didn't have cable and all those multiple channels that everybody has now and, and TV on demand. We had some great vintage stuff that was part of our lives back then. Well, we were lucky in the fact that the people who wrote um, the early television shows, and I'm usually like referring to the uh, 50s, which is when I grew up, um, part of it, um, that these guys, they didn't learn how to write from watching TV, uh, learning to write from watching movies. They had literary backgrounds, you know. They they had to really, really know their stuff back then so they could, com- you know, comprise a compelling uh, kind of pull-you-in drama or if it was comedy. They, they just took so many different twists and paths to to make you laugh, and it was engaging, you know? They just knew more. Um, the writers of today are, are really, really great. But there was a period where television was just like, everybody was writing a story from a show that came 20 years yeah. before them. Well, that's particularly true when you take a look at the cartoons, and you're a master of the cartoon voice, and you've studied them, and, of course, you've paid homage to Mel Blanc. But you look at some of those old Warner Brothers cartoons and the references that they make to literary figures and movie stars is really cool. Oh, yes. Um, they, um, there was a theme that was like a through line through many different cartoons by different production companies. And um, one of them was, um, oh, how do you do? You know, and nobody knew what that meant. It just sounded funny when someone said it. So I recently dug back through some old radio archives and there was a show called The Mad Russian and it starred a guy named Bert Gordon. Right. And and uh, not the movie producer Bert Gordon who did The Magic Sword. This is an actor named Bert Gordon who's mm-hmm. a comedian and he would put on this fake Russian accent and, and say, uh, oh, what do you do? <laughs> you know, and it, it was like people thought stuff like that was funny at the time. It's yeah. like, you know, you look marvelous, or, yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah, the age of the catchphrase, right? I mean, those were yes. great days back then, sure. I just watched yeah, a, I just, I watched a special on Get Smart, believe it or not. I, I watch YouTube specials all the time from 20 years ago, and all those, in that one series, all those expressions, sorry about that, Chief, uh, and loving yep. it, there, there had to be a dozen of them that became part of the culture. I love that period. Well, those guys, they deliberately wanted to throw in as much stuff as they could. Um, you know, the more catchphrases, the better. You know, they would become T-shirts. They would become bumper stickers or, you know, anything. The Billy but, West... But the joke was, the joke was yep. great because I hadn't heard uh, it told quite like that. You know, I'm sure that it had a different form early on in comedy, but, but the joke being... You know, like a guy who's painted into a corner says, would you believe there are six Coast Guard cutters coming for me right now? And if the guy just doesn't, you know, his adversary doesn't get nervous about it, just because I find that hard to believe. He goes, what about two cops in a rowboat? (laughs) I don't know why, but still. Everybody's at their wit's end and one person isn't buying the BS. And, uh, you know, it was a great gag. 
Well, the cartoons of the past, and, and we'll get to you and your amazing voice styles and all that, but the cartoons of the past, it was all about gags, wasn't it? It was vaudeville brought to the cell, I mean, in a way. It, it, so many of the bits I remember growing up watching Bugs Bunny do, I mean, they say Bugs was based on, on Groucho. I mean, there's so many things that had their links to vaudeville and places like that. Um, yeah, a lot of people that don't know what vaudeville is, it was before there was television, people at any time during the day and into the evening could go to their local theater and catch up to 12 different acts, 12 shows, uh, if you wanted to stay that long in the theater for a, probably a meager price, and uh, you could see comedians, you could see dramatic uh, dissertations, you could... Uh, you know, you could hear singers, or you could see little com, you know, combos, banjo, barbershop quartets, and uh, it was real entertaining because there was no television, and you know, and there were so many masters that came out of that genre. Um, I just played a theater in Austin, Texas, the Paramount Theater, and and when I was in there, they said the Marx Brothers had played here. Oh, wow. That's what I mean by vaudeville. It's like every town had their vaudeville house. And the Three Stooges would play at these things. You know, they'd get on trains and in between movies or, or short subjects, you know, they'd just try to make some money on the road. And, uh, you know, that's uh, so many performers that you, you've heard, like guys like me sort of draw from, came out of vaudeville. You know, I have a great respect for the lineage of all that. Well, you do have uh, what I love about you, of course, in the voice work you do as a cartoon man and also on stage and on radio shows. You like to draw from the old references. You mentioned the Mad Russian or or the the fact that uh, you played in a theater where the Marx Brothers trod. I mean, that to me is quite awesome. I don't know how many people get off on that kind of stuff, but I do. Well, you know what it is? It depends on what it means to you. Everything is relative. Like, to me, that's rarefied air. You know, I uh, if someone told me I was standing on a stage where Sid Caesar performed, it's, it, I'd be trembling. I mean, and I and I actually met him. He was my idol, my comedic idol, mm. him and Jonathan Winters. And I met both of them, and I worked with them on something. It was a mockumentary about Comic-Con, and, and I was in a scene with both my idols. You know, I mean, it's it's like the things that those guys did, and, and I'm, I'm always quick to reference, like, these people, but if you want to know for real what they did, you got to go check them out on, like, YouTube. As far as Sid Caesar goes, he did hundreds of dialects, and he would speak gibberish, but it sounded like whatever language he was doing a character in, Italian, Russian, you know, Ukrainian, um, French. They they ripped it up back then, and they had a way of injecting English words here and there so you would get the point of the joke. Right, right. Oh, masterful. Uh, you know, I was thinking about uh, the in Hollywood in the old days, they taught people how to fight with swords and ride horses. But the skills that, say, Sid Caesar or Danny Kaye had with mimicry oh. and with dialogue. And I mean, just listening to the Russian composer song from Danny Kaye, it's the mastery that that, that takes and the amount of concentration, it, it's mind blowing. And isn't it true, too, about Sid Caesar that even in his very late years prior to his death, uh, he was sort of out of it on occasion, but when, when somebody would ask him to do the dialects, he would just flow into them and become alive absolutely. again. Yeah, absolutely he would do that. Um, 
it was so darn great to work. And I was in a movie called uh, Comic Book the Movie, and it was a mockumentary on Comic-Con. And I had done a scene in, it was uh, filmed at uh, Jonathan Winter's house in Montecito. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm sitting in his living room, and Sid Caesar is sitting across from me, and it's him. And the, and the scene was like I was some ne'er do well who inherited the legacy of a comic book character that my grandfather had created. Um, and these guys were in the service with him, and they're trying to tell me, you know, he was a bum, your grandfather. He stole all that stuff from us. <laughs> and I'm trying to, like, fight back against these two. Like, look, you two don't know what you're talking about. And they just did a number on me ad lib improvised and I it felt so good taking oh that's punches from the two guys that I idolized it just was the best thing I ever lived that's to. like getting insulted by Don Rickles in his prime I mean it doesn't get any better yeah, than thank that you. right right uh, you know thank we you. we have so little time with with a genius like yourself and I want to just jump right in to talk about a few things are you in that much of a hurry you have to run. No, I just want don't want to hold you up. You got you know huge project. Oh, good. Okay, then we can just keep talking. Thank you very much. I, yes, I'm just trying are. to be extra polite. Uh, the, I know you're too polite. <laughs> the um, the Space Jam story is what I wanted to ask you about because in my office, and I'm sure you're familiar with the poster. I've got the famous poster of all the characters bowing and tearing when uh, Mel Blanc died, and it says speechless yeah. in the microphone. I mean, was that of all the projects that you've done so well, was that one of the more daunting ones because you had such huge shoes or audio shoes to fill? I'm just wondering. Um, I was always kind of fearless. I did uh, idolize Mel Blanc like dozens of other voice people and, you know, lay people that aren't in the business. You know, they just were aware of him and they appreciated his brilliance. Um, with me... I just heard about the audition, and um, I was on the Howard Stern show, and Ivan Reitman dropped by and mentioned that I, I should audition for it. And uh, I went out to L.A. and, you know, just gave it my best shot, and he liked what I did. There was a contingent of people, purists, you know, that, that say, you know, oh, I didn't like his Bugs Bunny. I like Jeff Bergman's, or I like uh, Greg Berger, or not Greg Berger, Greg Burson. And Joe Alasky. You know, there was a number of people that were always like in the running whenever Ed Looney Tunes project came up. And I said, that's the problem with being an imitator. Even though I got to work with Michael Jordan, Doc, the closest thing to a ridiculous figure that we have. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's true. When you're imitating such an iconic voice, I mean, obviously, it's it's got to be as close to that voice so that people will buy into it. But uh, yeah. um, but some of you is there too, isn't? Is there not when you're doing an imitation? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard not to put some of yourself into it. But um, you know, I mean, it's not just that character. I've replicated dozens of classic characters um, because it was a gig, and I happen to have a, a natural uh, love of the work and, and the characters and the people who did them. Uh, but I really, deep down, I just wanted someone to show me a picture of something and say, we're doing this show and we got, we got this character, you know, and we'll describe them to you and they show you pictures of them. And, and then it's up to you to, to formulate something because here they've all worked on something in concert and they're entrusting you with all mm. the work they put into it. Mm. So 
I used to think long and hard before I would come up with any kind of a voice for anything. Um, you know, and that was my favorite part of voice stuff. Voice acting was to be able to create a character. One of the questions that comes up a lot is, how do you keep a character consistent? Because that's a key, right? Making sure that the voice you have is the voice you'll have tomorrow. And do you do that with just repetition, recording yourself frequently, playing it back? Or I mean, where where does where does that filing cabinet in your head come into play? Well, everything is in your. It starts in your head. I mean, you know, I hear what I want to do, like a melody. Every character has a melody, like a musical melody, like Yogi Bear. If I didn't say any words as Yogi Bear, you'd know it was him from the cadence and the melody. Mm. You know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and and every character has, like, a, a melody. And when you listen to them and you, and you pretend you they're not saying any words. You hear the ups and downs of each particular character, and that was that was the choice. That those were the choices of mm. um, the actor who did them. That's very interesting, because I've often said when doing voice work that it's really quite melodic and it's very much like a song, even a commercial, a dry, straightforward 60-second spot. There are points in the commercial where you slow down, you speed up, you raise your pitch, you lower your pitch. But that's really, uh, really interesting. The characters, I mean, there's so many of them, uh, too long to list, but the characters I've read somewhere about you uh, sometimes come from old movie references or uh, a favorite old comic that you can sort of tweak when you're coming up with an original character. Is that true? Uh, yes, on Futurama, I auditioned for a bunch of characters, and, uh, you know, they, I just sat with them, and, and I made some hard and fast choices with not, not quite knowing what they were going to throw at me. Um, you know, I, I decided to use my own voice, like when I was 25. I was real whiny and nasally, and I played in bands, and, you know, I was always complaining. I was complaining and nah, nah, nah. I broke a string. <laughs> and and I thought there's, you know, I was a project for anybody who ever got involved with me, especially a woman, a girl. You know, I was a real project, as they say. And um, and some girls liked it because they could try to fix you, you know. And, <laughs> Why don't you wear this kind of shirt? What are you doing wearing that stupid yeah. thing? And uh, I wanted Fry. Philip J. Fry on Futurama to be a project for Leela. And I thought, well, who better, <laughs> you know, than to just mimic my own voice when I was 25. Uh, yeah. And plus, it's a voice that it's a hard thing to get your head around because if they were going to replace me, it's very hard to pick somebody's real voice and, and them pretending to be 25 with that voice. Mm. There's no reference. There's nothing to gauge it by. Um, the others, you know, I mean, Comedians and nightclubs and, and radio shows, you know, I, I've heard everybody do the voices from Futurama, but they're the ones that are like uh, kind of uh, caricature or cartoony. They're more cartoony, even though your acting has to make them real. Even no matter what kind of voice they have, you're hoping that somebody feels in their heart of hearts that that person exists, that mm. That person could have a conversation with you, and you'd buy it. That's um, a that's a that's a very interesting point because uh, there's a certain amount of sincerity and truth to a performance, even when you're 
you're imitating or coming up with a new voice of a character, we have to, in a sense, believe it and uh, feel that we could have a relationship, even if the character has three fingers, as most cartoon characters seem to. Uh, you know, it's, it, when I was in school, high school and college and all that, I remember there was always that one kid in class who said, I do impressions, I do impressions, and ended up doing, yes. you know, the same three impressions that everybody on, like, Rich Little did. But what I love about yes. you and guys like you is you go – far afield and come up with not Mo and not Curly, but Larry, okay? And yeah. in my opinion, the glue who held those three guys together was Larry Fine. Where did the Larry, because it, it's a Stern favorite and so forth, but where did this come from? Were you doing Larry as a kid? <laughs> Were you? Uh, yeah, sort of. It kind of came about. I mean, everybody everybody watched Mo and Curly or Mo and Shemp, although I absolutely loved Shemp because he was on the periphery. And I think he was the most instinctive actor of the three of them. Had a long career Curly before them, yeah. Yeah, Curly was just pure it. And and he rocked. That's why, you know, that's why everybody had their eye on him is because it was unpredictable. You know, he probably hurt himself willingly to pull off a, yeah. a gag. Mm. And, but, uh, but I used to watch the little that Larry did, and there was something very sublime about him, you know, and he'd just say little things here and there, and I went, Precious, what he just said and how he said it. Um, you know, like, uh, be careful, Mo, there's too much sizzle on that tree. You know, and I <laughs> go, what is that? What what, what makes it sound like that? Yeah. And uh, with a little um, research, I realized that the guy who did the voice of George Jetson, his name was George O'Hanlon, and he was, um, he was an actor. He was in a lot of short subjects. One was... Um, Joe Dokes, Behind the Eight Ball, mm-hmm. Short Subjects. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was always, so you want to be a plumber. So you want to be a TV repairman. That was the name of every short subject that he was in. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he sounded like George Jetson in those things, and that's how I identified him. But he, I found out he was from Philly, and Larry Fine was from Philly. Uh. And they both had this strange plumbing, some weird modification between their nose and their throat that you know like uh larry would be like you know uh you know hey mo i peed on my shoe you know and, and george O'Hanlon would be like ah come on Janie, honey the clean is 500 miles away <laughs> the next five minutes just to get there you know and, and i said what is this plug you know it must have been something in the water but that's one thing leads to another if you yeah. actually go into this uh insane detailed uh, study of stuff like that, arcane stuff. But it's the study that sounds to me like you're loving as much as you did way back when, when you first started. It's it's researching, it's discovering a character. And when we only have you on one dimension in your voice, you've got to do a lot for us. You've got to really bring that character to life, no? Yeah, well, that's my problem with casting celebrities for animated stuff. It's like, what made a character magic in animation, this is just my opinion, um, was that there was alchemy. Somebody came in there, and they sounded like one thing, their real self. And then then all of a sudden they take a character and they create an entire disembodied voice from their own. Something totally different from what they are. And that's the craft. That's the artistry. Um, something has to change. Like, you know, they would always hire guys like me and and my pals um, come in, they say, hey, listen, we got this bar of lead on the table, and uh, we'd like it if you could turn it into gold, you know, before.
before you leave? And he's like, yeah, bing, <laughs> gone, done. And then the celebrities would come in and say, you know, we got this bar, but excuse me, where's my $20 million? You know, right. and they just pass the table. Yeah. I don't have the luxury of being who and exactly what I am. Yeah, if, if they hire... If there's they... no artistry involved to it, unless you want to redefine art as far as... Right. They, doing a voice. they draw the characters to be very artistic, and and they fit the characters to the voice. You're, you're doing the other uh, side of the coin. You're fitting that voice to the character that probably already exists. Um, and, and a question that comes up to me occasionally on a very small scale, I mean, I'll sometimes walk by a radio, and there's a spot that I did three years ago, and honest to God, for a few seconds, I have no idea that I did that. Do you have ever an occasion when you're in a mixed company or whatever, and something comes on or a TV flashes by, and you're there, and you for a minute you say, hmm, that sounds pretty good, you don't realize it's you? Uh, yeah, it, it, it didn't used to, but there's such a voluminous amount of stuff, only because I've been around so long. You know, I mean, I've been actually working in whatever you want to call show business for like 40 years, you know, going back to when I used to play music and sing for a living. And um, and then there was radio stuff. There was Boston. Um, my alma mater, WBCN, uh, it, it was a playground. You right, know? They, right. I was very, very lucky. They allowed somebody like me to come in there and just wreak havoc with whatever I mm. felt like doing. And... Uh, that was on its way out. FM radio became controlled, too. I mean, um, you know, but there was free-form programming. Disc jockeys could play records, like, according to how they felt that day. And then all of a sudden, computers were telling you, well, this song's in the key of B, and the and the end of this song is in the key of B, and we it's our determination that they fit together well because they're in the same key. Oh, is that what it is? Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, research tells yeah, us you know, we ought to play this song five times an hour. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I was in that era, too, uh, d still doing music radio in the in the 80s and listening to Charles and you and realizing it, what you guys were doing in the 80s was what people were doing in the 30s on radio. Granted, the content was a little different, but it was freeform, creative, you know, theater of the mind <laughs> stuff. I mean, it was a way to pretend that you weren't a uh, a dispenser for advertisement. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like you had to give back something. Yeah, the music is one thing, but then, I mean, they didn't play music for 24 hours a day. So what happens in between that, to me, was very, very special that you had to, you had to be on your toes. You had to make people happy or, or compelled to listen in some way or other, and you know, I don't mean like the old talkers who would, you know, I mean, as much as I love Paul Harvey, uh, he had the grandeur of silence on his side. In other words, if he just stuck his voice under, friends, you know what you and I need? I mean, really need? That's a good cup of coffee. You know, he didn't have time right. to do that, but he drew people in that way. So we did with whatever we had, which was some comedic skills and, um, People that I had worked with were able to do a few characters here and there, and we were always just pushing the limits to see what we could do. And that was important. That's what gave the station an identity, um, you know, outside of the fact that it played a certain kind of music. How did you make the move from the big mattress to Stern? Was it a, pretty much a direct route, or did you stop radio for a while and find, wind up in New York? How did that happen for you? I... um. I was newly sober. You know, I had been off on a comet for quite a few years, and that was 
a throwback to the rock and roll days. And when I straightened out, I, I began doing the best work that I had ever done. And I decided that I had done everything that I could do at this station. I wanted to broaden my horizon, so I sort of put in a uh, non-written requisition. <laughs> you know, can I come to New York? Mel Carmazon was running things. And so that, I said, I want to move to New York, Mel. What do you think? And he says, well, you know. He says, Howard knows about you. I told him about you. And, you know, and I didn't know. Everything was just like uh, unwritten. I had no idea, no guarantees, no nothing. Just go to New York. And and I threw myself into it. Um, and I was working in production at Kate. K-Rock in New York City. And then, of course, we had crossed paths with, with Howard in the morning, and he'd be just getting off his show, and I'd just be coming in, and I would sit in front of him while he was eating his uh, breakfast, and I would start launching into routines like, you know, hey, Howard, I, I see all these clips from the old Lucy show. You know, they're showing them in rotation, like the grape stomping and the, you know, the conveyor belt bonbon scene and everything. I guess she's probably on her way out. And uh, and I started riffing on it, except not the Lucille Ball from those oh, TV shows. Where right. The, oh, it's still holding. You know, it, it wasn't that. It was like, ah, oh, Ricky, get my clutch part. You know, and I started riffing, and, and he started shooting potato, baked potato out of his nose. You know, he was choking, laughing, and he said, oh, really? He said, I'm going to call you tomorrow morning. Gary's going to call you. Just do that. Just do that. So Lucy yeah, from so the, what the, the yeah the Stone fight Pillow fight. the Stone Pillow Lucy era right? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but but boy, I mean, it, it just was so dark. But you know, I mean, we we had to break down some barriers, otherwise nothing would change. You know, just because you're a little irreverent doesn't mean that everything goes a hundred percent irreverent. You've just got anemic imitators. And society catches up slowly, and, and you know they develop, uh, you know how they choose to think about comedy. It's subjective, yeah. no matter what you're doing. And here's a question: I mean, some people uh, who do voice work and impressions and so forth often say, some people say, well, the, the, I, we can do everybody except so and so. This particular actor, he has no. Uh, nothing to grasp onto. And I wonder about that because I've heard people impersonate like you, you impersonate people. I never thought would be impersonated. And is there, is there something in anyone's presentation from Kevin Costner on down where that is matchable that we can grasp onto? Do you think? Well, something happened, you know, it's like some, there must've been like some alien voice and personality snatchers as, as we got older, because suddenly every guy in the movie had the same voice. He was like, where are you going? Give me a business. How about if we sock you in the head? Go ahead, try it. You know, two different guys with the same voice. <laughs> and, and, and it's like when you watch a movie with Robert Mitchum in it and, and uh, say, Jack Palance, they were the same age as these previous two guys I'm talking about, except one would be like, uh, I'm to drop the gun now and keep your life. Now, listen, I have a gun. You do not. <laughs> no, I mean, wh why could I, I could be blind and tell who was who? But oh, yeah. You know, these guys all sound alike somehow. I don't know to me. Some have a, a, a couple of voices that throw me for a loop occasionally. 
Well, it's like uh, Al Pacino. When you, it's so funny when you look at his early work in The Godfather and even Serpico, and he's very calm and labored and all that. And <laughs> if you look at him in the yeah. last twenty years, he's screaming. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing how some of these people evolve. These actors. Well, he was, he was being minimal in the beginning, and then he decided to change his style. It's like a musician, you know. In the beginning, um, somebody like um, Miles Davis. He was all over the place, peppering the world with notes because they were doing bebop and jazz and, and they were like reinventing everything. And then in his later years, you listen to a song he's in and every like 30 seconds he might play a note or two. You know, he yeah. became totally minimalistic because he had done everything. Um you know, I think it switches around like that with mm. voice stuff, too. So, Billy, do you uh, do stand-up? Do you do shows? You mentioned Texas. You were down there. And and what is a show with Billy West like? Because he's so comfortable in a studio, whether it's a radio studio or a production house. I, I'm just wondering what your road shows are like. Well, I don't. I go out doing these Comic-Cons, and it's mostly just, you know, they invite me to come out, and, and people, I've met thousands of people oh. that come up and they want to just meet you and, and get an autograph, and um, and I'll spend as much time as I can with everybody because I wouldn't know what was going on in the world unless I went out there and talked to people. Um, and and then occasionally I will go with other people. Most of the time there'll be other people in the business that will do a panel. We'll get invited to just you know speak before a crowd of people and answer questions and. You know, you put on a little dog and pony show, but it's not stand-up exactly. Yeah. Stand-up is real tough, by the way. It is tough, absolutely. I've... It's murder. I didn't know what to do. I used to just come <laughs> out there and go, ever notice everything? Yeah, yes. I, I know a lot of stand-up comics, as you do, and, and it, they, they don't talk about their craft enough because it is so demanding. You know, I, I wanted to raise the, the question based on what you just told me, it, what it feels like to know that you're in a crowd of 3,000, 4,000 people, and they're really there because you've made a difference in their lives by being this voice, by providing this joy. I mean, to me, that's the greatest joy in a, in a very small way when people recognize what I've done on the air. It that must make you feel heartwarming to know that uh, you've made a difference with just your voice, your talent. Um, it's it's very humbling. It's so it's always been totally surreal to hear my voice coming out of anywhere. Um, and it, it's I'm I'm blessed. I, I I come from a great place of gratitude. Like uh, my friend Tom Kenny, who does SpongeBob plus a zillion billion other things. He's so talented and funny. We uh, talk about stuff and we just how grateful we are. What are the odds of having that kind of success? I mean, yeah, maybe hit once, but have a career for 30 years? Unheard of. Yeah. And, and, and I think that uh, it, it's a testament to, to your passion. You know, I mean, you, you, don't, you never lose your edge if you're, you're always inspired and you always have passion. And you bring it, and you serve it up in whatever vehicle you decide to, to deliver it in. And the fact that you're dealing with what for many might be kid stuff, uh, it's not kid stuff, because I am just as much a fan of what I was watching when I was 10 as I am now that I'm 60. So, uh, you know, it, it, it stays with you. The things you do and the things that the animators do, for instance, they, they are lifelong pursuits for most of the people who love them, right? I mean... 
you don't ever lose your love. Well, in my case, for the Three Stooges or Groucho or or Bugs Bunny. I mean, it's there forever. Never. But it did see. It was of the time. It was like there was an electricity in the air at any point in anyone's life. And what electricity is is totally relative because there might be some people that you know will play uh, a Kanye West uh, track until it melts. And for some reason, it turns them on no end. It speaks to them, and it inspires them. I just can't relate to it because I don't feel that same resonance emotionally or otherwise, you know. But it's but for my own world, um, you know, I protected my fortress of uh, Brian Wilson and hmm. Beach Boys and Beatles and Jeff Beck. Plus, I listened to jazzers, you know, um, George Van Epps and Lenny Groh. Uh, Danny Gatton, yeah, and, player. I, I I wanted to listen to those guys all day, every day, and I was the same way with like voice stuff. And you still do music, right? Is that what I'm told? Uh, you you still have a band occasionally? You get together with and write and produce and perform. I I used to, and then I got too busy. But I do have a room full of guitars and some amps, and and they gesture to me as I walk by that door. It's hard to walk by the door with them all sitting there, the sleeping beauties, you know? Yeah, well, What are you doing? What are you doing? What do you mean you're too busy? Yeah, forget Shemp for a few minutes and get over here. <laughs> Play with us. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, listen, you are a delight. Uh, you, you, oh, there he is, Shemp. <laughs> you're a delight. Here to, I am, <laughs> the forgotten stew. No, who was the forgotten stew? Joe Dorita. We want to forget Joe Dorita. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> was he the first Italian stew? I don't think he was Italian. Yeah, well, it, it certainly didn't fit the mold. If he was, right? I mean, you had to be no, short and he, Jewish. He also, yeah, look, he had it in his contract that he wasn't allowed to be hit. What kind of a stooge is that? You're gonna stand next to the great Mo Howard, one man laugh factory, and you're gonna go. Sorry, Mo, I can't let you hit me. <laughs> Maybe the ghost of Ted Healy has haunted him or continued to haunt him and hit him in his dreams. I don't know. Wow. I don't know. But Joe was, you know, it was like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> Two grown men talking Three Stooges as we're talking. I know. Was you know do you remember Jerry Williams? Uh, very well. I knew Jerry quite well, yes. Jerry Williams had a a very demeaning thing to say about, like, politicians that would sit there and, you know, arguing that basically the price of tea in China to, to, to grandstand in the Senate or House of Representatives, and he would go, full-grown men. Two full-grown men. You know, and I just used to love that. <laughs> Never got a dinner, Jerry Williams. Well, Yeah, I loved him. We do appreciate your uh, artistry, and I think more than anything, I appreciate your passion, man. It's great, isn't it, to be at this stage of your career still in demand and, and also knowing that there are a lot of people who appreciate you. So I just want to say I appreciate you. Thank you so much for spending a little time with me today. Well, now I owe you something. I'm going to run down some voices that, that brought me to where I am. Please. Um, I, did, um, I did Ren and Stimpy for Nickelodeon. Hey, Ren, you button me. You fool! Yes, I can you. And I did uh, Doug on. Oh yes, Nickelodeon. He was, um, you know, a pinkly shy eleven and a half year old. And this is my dad, Chuck. And I did the bad kid, Roger. He loser! I'm a 
I'm running for office, so fuck this. <laughs> and, and and please, excuse me, boy, that that that's gotta. I gotta like spray my throat with WD forty to do some of those. Every but time then, I uh, go, every time I go to the movies now, in the preview before the trailers, I guess there's that Eminem commercial. Is that you, Mister Red Eminem, in the commercial at the movie house, or somebody else take yeah. over for you? Good. No, that's me, and that's me on TV too. Have you ever eaten me? <laughs> and uh, and I did uh, Futurama. Duke Chief Ride, reporting for duty. Um. There was uh, Professor Hubert Farnsworth. Good news, everyone. Bad news. <laughs> Dr. Zoidberg. Um, <laughs> you need an autograph? Why not Zoidberg? Why not? And then there was Zap Brannigan. It was based on all the big dumb dish jockeys I worked with that loved far and away beyond the sound of their own voice. You know, I mean, like, they loved their own voice beyond anything in the world. And they would stretch it out and hold the, the ends of sentences or add a little grunt at the end of it because they wouldn't want to let it go. It's like, okay, polluted men, I've made it with a woman. <laughs> I know so those guys. guys used to go, well, the temperature's uh, five minutes past eight yeah, in the evening. And yeah. <laughs> Hey, I have one for you, and I know you did this voice, of course. We talked about Bugs Bunny early on and the famous Looney Tunes characters. I never knew until I did a little research at some point in my life that Elmer Fudd was not done by Mel Blanc. No, it was a guy named Arthur Q. Bryan, who, um, he's on YouTube. I'm telling everybody that's listening to you, if you're hearing these names and you're going, I don't know what the hell they're talking about, go on YouTube. And, and it will take you on a ride like you never imagined to watch these freaks from the old days um, that gave us the spark. Um, but, yeah, Elmer Fudd, he did that character on radio. Um, Arthur Q. Bryan did. And, uh, you know, and I got to play him, like, for, you know, Geico commercials. And uh, I did him in Space Jam. He's very, very quiet. I'm hunting Wabbit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's just go- It's amazing how you could just pull them up, and that's the beauty of it. It really is. Um, I want to thank you again for your, your amazing talent and for joining us here a bit. And, and I know you, you occasionally check in with the Boston scene on radio when you call into BZ and elsewhere, but do you ever get back here to this area to, to tour? And- I'll probably be around uh, near Thanksgiving. There's a show up there in November that I'm going to be invited to, and uh, you know, be continued. We should do uh, we should do this again. Absolutely, we'll watch you on your website for updates. But uh, thank you very much, and uh, all I can say is keep up the great work, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, George. It means a lot. I appreciate it too. You've been listening to On Mike with me, Jordan Rich, a podcast produced and hosted by Chart Productions on the web at chartproductions.com. This podcast available on Apple, Google+, Stitcher, and all other download platforms. I invite you to rate, review, download, and subscribe to this podcast. And as always, I want to thank you for listening and wish you the very best day.